together with one voice, let's ask God for help again, just to help us as we open his word. Our Father, we need all the grace and all the help that you who is an overflowing fountain of goodness could ever provide for us. We need your help now. We pray that you would take the word that you have inspired and preserved as redemptive revelation for us to put on display your eternal plan of salvation And we pray that you would take us poor, finite creatures and that you would help us come face to face with you to hear your word and through the help of your Holy Spirit to be asking, what does this mean? How shall I live? What shall I believe? And we pray that we might behold you in all your beauty and your glory. And that the impact of that might be that we would run from ourselves and turn from our sin. And put all your promises in a huge bear hug and embrace them and believe them as the truth with which you revealed to us. You're good. We want to know you. Please, by your Spirit's help, we pray for your presence and your aid. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 21 years and a few hours ago, our nation and our world was changed forever. For today is the 21st anniversary of September 11th, 2001, what we call 911. And like my parents could remember the day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, maybe some of you who were old enough to remember, remember what you were doing 21 years ago today. And indeed, we remember death and destruction. But perhaps some of you remember what compelled the emergency responders, the police and firemen of that great city, that megacity, New York, to respond consistent with their training and to run and to climb flight after flight after flight because they were drawn and compelled by something larger than themselves for people that they did not even know that they might make a difference. There was something compelling them upward. And many, of course, of them, many of them perished that day as the Twin Towers collapsed. But these were men and women who had a calling, men and women, if you say, who were living out 
In fact, you could say we're dying out their vocation. I was sharing yesterday that I was sharing with a family a song by Alison Krauss where she sings this beautiful version of James Taylor's In My Mind, I'm Going to Carolina. Maybe some of you know it. And I absolutely love this song, maybe because now I'm a Carolinian, but I just love her voice in it. One of the commentators on YouTube in the comments says, they wrote this about Allison's talent. They said this of her voice. One of those rare people who, when they were born, had their vocation stamped upon their soul. And they said, a voice of pure magic. Have you ever thought, given this a thought? When God created you and me, he stamped our vocation on our souls. Here it is, worshiper. If you look around, without fail, every single person was made as a worshiper. One of our former pastors, Nick Alford, makes this point in his book, Doxology, How Worship Works. He says, everybody worships. It may be stuff, sports, or Shiva, or Shiva, but everybody worships something. When God formed man from dust, he breathed into his soul a longing for a greater glory, the innate need to love, serve, honor, and adore something beyond the narrow confines of his own horizon we are worshipers nick says by nature always looking above ourselves for a target worthy of our devotion some of you know this quote from john piper he says missions exist because worship does not and you might say by analogy that missions do not exist when we fail to cultivate this white, hot worship in our church body, in our corporate life, in our personal lives. And the reality is you and I will never preach the gospel, we'll never intentionally place ourselves in the way of suffering for the sake of the gospel if we do not cherish the gospel and the God who gives the gospel, who is the gospel. If we do not love the Father, if we do not adore the Son, if we are unequated with the work of the Spirit in our experience, we'll never be missional because we fail to worship. And the Christian takes Paul's words in Galatians 5.25 to form a fervent prayer. And some of you may know this from memory. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so the Christian's prayer might be something like this. Since I live by your Spirit, let me also walk in the Spirit. And knowledge itself will not suffice. Even organizational excellence in a church family will not do. If worship does not take place regularly in the lives of our members... And then in our corporate worship, biblical missions will not ha happen, never at least on our part. And I want to give the fuller quote here from John Piper. He says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, 
not missions, because God is ultimate, not men. And he goes on and he says this, when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Here's our big idea this morning. Pretty simple. You worship. Indeed, you and I were made for worship. That was the original design at creation. And if you're a Christian, you were redeemed for worship. That's the purpose for which God redeemed you. We were made a redeemed body, a dwelling of God in the spirit, a holy priesthood. And it's true of the church universal, if you'll use that term, but it's uniquely delegated to each visible, gathered, and constituted church. And so over four weeks, last week, we looked at the gospel. This week, worship. In two weeks, nurture, how we love one another, how we're to care for one another in the body of Christ. And then after that, we'll look at the church's mission. I want to give our outline this morning for our message is from a book called The Church by Edmund Clowney. And this is what Edmund Clowney, Dr. Clowney says of our service as Christians. Because really, once you answer the why, why do we exist, the what and the how naturally follow. Edmund Clowney says this, the Lord does not ask for references commending us for his servants, for his service. He calls us, not because he needs us, but because we need him. Yet we cannot know him without also serving him. And so he goes on and he says this, and you've heard this before here from this pulpit, the church is served or is called to serve God in three ways. To serve God directly in worship. To serve the saints in nurture, that is to live out all those one another's in the New Testament, and then to serve the world in witness. And spatially, if we were doing this in terms of three-dimensional space, we might describe worship of God as our upward or vertical service. Nurture to his people as our inward service. And witness to his world is our outward service. And it's a sense of up, in, and then out. But I want just this two-point outline to galvanize your thinking about worship. And here it is. If you're taking notes, you can take a lot of notes, but let me give it to you really succinctly for today. Here it is. God's glory, God's glory draws our worship. That's number one. God's glory draws our worship. You might use the word attracts as a synonym for draws. God's glory draws our worship. And secondly, God's will directs our worship. So kids, if mom and dad ask you about the sermon, just know, hey, what are you? And your answer is, I am a what? I am a worshiper. You were made for what? I was made for worship. And this is how the church directly serves God. And we're going to talk about that, the dimensions of that in a moment. But very simply, God's glory draws our worship. God's will directs 
our worship. Now, where do we find God's will? Let's not complicate this. In his word. So we might say God's word directs our worship. God's glory draws our worship. God's word or will directs it. It gives it shape. First, let's think of God's glory as drawing, as pulling out, bringing to the surface our worship. Let's return for a moment to our text in Isaiah 6. Just keep that open in front of you. And understand here in Isaiah 6, this is the point that we find Isaiah's commission. God's call to Isaiah, God's commissioning of Isaiah to a prophetic ministry. And it's the first five chapters of Isaiah that give in seed or what we'd say in germ form the content of that ministry. But here is the call itself. And I want us to see how all the dimensions of worship are found in this account of Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry. I want to keep this very simple. Think of three words, confrontation, adoration, and edification. Confrontation, adoration, and edification. And so we're going to take this passage where Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord himself in the temple. He hears this word from one seraphim to another. Whether there are two there or many, we don't know. But this word and his response to it, his conviction, but we're going to take this and see from this confrontation, adoration, and edification. First confrontation. Isaiah comes face to face with God in the temple in this heavenly vision. It's as though it's all he could see. In the year that King Uzziah died, it's I saw the Lord. He's sitting, he's elevated, and man was his robe big. You've seen it sometimes. We've had brides in this church. And they come to get married, and the train of their bridal dress is real long. And then you see the maid of honor comes over and tries to get that thing just perfectly straight. It was impossible here. There wasn't enough scale or dimension for, the, for enough volume to stretch out the train of Adonai Tzabaeus' robe. That's how Glorious, a vision that Isaiah was confronted with. He comes face to face with God. He's confronted with God. The seraphim are peripheral. By the way, that's the only place in the Bible you read of seraphim. These six-winged creatures. But here's the image. He's confronted with God as the one with whom he will have to do. God who is formidable. Yes, there's the seraphim, and probably that was really curious to him to see these six-winged creatures, two wings covering their face, two their feet, two flying, as though the two, if you think about what's going on here, covering their eyes, that they could not, that they might not 
be blinded by the brilliant glory of the holiness of God, that in humility they're covering their feet, got an expression of being low, and then they're on mission, they're flying with two wings as they give this, this wonderful confession to one another and to Isaiah. But you see here, secondly, adoration. Adoration is easier to see in passages like Psalm 96, which is why we use it as our call to worship. But I want you to see how all of Isaiah's senses are taken up with sight, sound, and smell in his vision. He's completely taken up with that. Some of you who've hunted, who've ever been in a tree stand in the woods as the woods wake up, and the first rays of sunlight come are appearing to the east, and the birds begin to sing, and, and the rays of the sun cast these shadows through the trees, and, and then you begin to notice, you hear and see birds and a, a squirrel there, and you're attuned to everything. You're so alive with the sights and the sounds, even the smell of the woods in this. This is the circumstance. This is the presenting situation for this second dimension of worship, not just confrontation, but Adoration. And he's utterly convicted of his own sinfulness. You notice he says, woe is me. And there's lots of woes on the previous page in chapter 5. Lots of woes. But now, this is Isaiah's woe. And he doesn't even start with the nation of Israel. He starts with me. Woe is me. I'm lost. It's like, God, you just gutted me. I'm done. There's no coming back. And he's overwhelmed with the holiness of this thrice holy God. This idea of emphasis here. Not maybe because God is three persons and he's triune God, but a way of kind of Hebraic emphasis. It'd kind of be like maybe a wife looking at her husband and saying, you're handsome, handsome handsome and the seraphim this is all they have to say and you're holy 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 this one attribute that's the lord of hosts this whole earth it's covered it's filled every square inch with his glory. It's his world. It's filled like a vessel with the glory of a thrice holy God. But there's more here. This is that divinely appointed moment that will shape the whole of his prophetic ministry. He gets a sight of who God is and he trembles, he quakes and trembles in his holy admixture of, you might call it convicted adoration. 
This is a little different than the morning in spring like it's the first of April and the flowers are blooming and it's a perfectly bluebird day and everything's going great and you go out on your screened in porch and you open your Bible and you drink your coffee and everything's perfect and right and good. That's easy to adore God and enjoy him then. But here there's just a moment of convicted adoration or adoring conviction. It's a holy admixture. It's weird in a sense. But he's before the Lord of hosts who's holy, holy, holy before the one whose glory fills the earth. He's been confronted with God. He has adored the Lord of hosts. But there's a final dimension of worship here in Isaiah 6 with the call of the prophet and it's edification. And when we say edification, it's just a $10 word to communicate that something is built up. It grows positively out of the ground and up. And Isaiah is not left unchanged here. The Lord takes away his sin. The touch of the burning coal to his lips is more than symbolic. The word comes from the seraphim. Look at it there in verse 7. This is beautiful. The seraphim with tongs into the seraphim's hand in this white hot internally red and glowing coal to the lips of Isaiah with these words. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's the word kafar, like Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. It's covered, never to be seen again, dealt with, removed that way. Very much like Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. But there's more evidence that Isaiah is built up here by his worship. He answers the call to deliver the word of the Lord. He doesn't just sit there catatonically and say, so what? God asks this question. All right, who's on my team? Who's signing up? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And here's Isaiah's answer. Here am I. Here I am. Send me. Hey, right over here. I'm not much, but I'm willing. Okay, I'm not much, but I'm willing. Confrontation. Adoration in a holy mixture with conviction. And then edification. It's a man Who's, who goes away changed. He's not left unchanged, just saying, so what? And you might know that from 1 Corinthians 14, and it's very easy to focus on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and think to get lost in dialogue about spiritual gifts. But here's the point from 1 Corinthians 14. One of the goals of worship is edification. And it's a criteria of God-centered, orderly worship that when we've participated in, 
in it, and when we walk away, we have been built up in our faith. That's a criteria of God-centered, Christ-exalted worship. So God's glory draws our worship. Secondly, I want us to see that God's will directs our worship. And that will is found nowhere else but in his word. I want us this morning to think about this distinction between the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. Hear me just for a moment. The elements of worship versus the circumstances of worship. For some of you, that might be a new idea, a new concept. And God does allow ordered freedom in our corporate worship. But he says these are the things that are to be the elements of your worship. They're the ingredients of biblical worship. And I want us to, to, to go through these for a moment. And I want us to think of three that are regular in every week in our corporate gathering. Three that are regular in every week in our corporate gathering. And then two that are a bit by interval. Those that are not necessarily every week are the, two, the sacraments or the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But those elements that are regular are non-negotiable. What are they? And they are, what are the elements we find in God's word, the elements of worship? Preaching, praying, and singing. Now, I want to expand on those for a moment and then try to anchor those in a biblical text. So there's the preaching of the word. And you might remember that Paul says to Timothy, pay attention to the public reading of Scripture. That makes sense because at the point that the Bible is coming together as a canon of Scripture, there weren't just 100 copies of the Bible. I think between my office and my house, I have somewhere between 12 and 13 Bibles. NIV, ESV, NAS, today's NIV, Christian Standard Bible, all these different. But that wasn't true when Paul saying that to Timothy. And that's why typically we read, we not only preach the word, but we read it. That's why we read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 this morning. So there's the preaching of the word, there's prayer shaped by the word, and there's singing songs of praise. But we would say that the preaching of the word is central to our worship. And the other things are preparatory to that. Before Rich selects the songs for a week, he normally knows the title of the message we're going to preach, the text, and what our main idea is. What is our focus? Text, title, and focus. And from there, Pastor Rich is selecting songs along this arc from creation, fall, redemption, restoration, a thrust, a narrative, and a sweep of songs from adoration, like that at creation, to our joy and rejoicing for what God has done for us in, in Jesus Christ. Now let's be clear. The preaching of the word is central to our worship. It's the central element, but it's not an exclusive element. That's why we don't walk up here at 1045 and like, okay, and now for our message. And then we preach for an hour and 20 minutes right? It's a central element, but not an exclusive element. And Paul charges Timothy 
with this sacred charge in 2 Timothy 4. I'd like you to turn there briefly and you'll understand why is it that preaching here at Grace Baptist Church of Taylor's is regarded as central to our worship. In his last letter to really his most significant protege or child in the faith, Paul says to Timothy, here's this charge. I'm giving you a charge. You are now under oath. And God is witness that I'm giving this charge to you. He says, the charge is literally taking place in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Now, if you wonder what the content of that preaching would be, look back in chapter 2, verse 8, and Paul says this, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And Paul would say, woe to me and woe to every preacher if we preach not the gospel, if we do not preach Christ and him crucified. Well, not only is there this first element of the preaching of the word, But there are prayers shaped by the word. Look at 1 Timothy 2 just for a moment. I want you to note that. Particularly verses 1 through 7. And then verse 8. Paul instructs Timothy about prayer. But by implication in verse 8, the focus is the body of Christ gathered corporately and praying together. That's why the Puritans called the pastoral prayer the long prayer. And normally when I get our bulletin, I know what we're going to pray for. Pastor Jamie and I, we have, as a habit, we were thinking, what are we going to pray? We give forethought. We don't just come, waltz up here and pray. We think, what are we praying for with these needs and these churches? And then there's a third element. It's the singing of songs of praise. And we find that in Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes this Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I want to read to you a quote here from Robert Rayburn about this idea of corporate worship. And as we gather together, he says, when there are a number of worshipers present, there is participation in worship which is more intense than is the individual passion of any one of them when he is by himself. It is common knowledge that a mob is more cruel than any individual in it would be by himself. Similarly, the enjoyment of an elite company of music lovers at the symphony is more intense than that of a single music lover sitting by himself listening to the same music. God has so created man that there are deeper delights and more intense inspiration in the worshiping congregation than in individual devotion. Now, these are the regular elements of worship. The word, prayer, 
singing. In the periodic elements, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and in fact, next Sunday on the 18th, in the morning, not the evening, in the morning, we'll celebrate communion together. Briefly, you might know, what are the, what's the difference between elements and circumstances? Well, let's speak of those just for a moment. When we have circumstances deal with what we have liberty. We could use the English Standard Version. We could use the New American Standard, maybe the Christian Standard Bible. Some of you might have noticed that Psalm 96 in our responsive reading is from the New I, the new NI, the NIV that we read this morning. It's from the NIV. Whether we have chairs or pews, whether we meet at 1045 or 930, whether we normally have two songs, one song, one song, we could do four songs and then no songs, then one song. All those things that we have the children up to a certain age with us and they go out, those are circumstances. They are less significant uh, than the elements. The elements are a matter of liberty and something that each congregation decides on their own. Well, how do we apply this? These last 10 minutes, I want to give us maybe five applications as we think about worship. How do we practically apply a biblical understanding of worship? What are the steps to ensure that when we gather corporately as a body, our worship will know a white, hot worship? And I'm going to give you five, I think. I had more and then I whittled it down. I thought five is enough for any congregation on a Sunday morning. All right. Number one, and I'm going to reverse these in order and remember. So here's the idea. Connect the private and the corporate. Remember that for the Christian, all of life is worship. This is the God-endorsed response to the gospel. It's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 appears after Romans 1 through 11. As God displays his whole plan and a theology of his redemption in Christ, Paul's only thought, his immediate response as he, as he thinks of this benediction, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. At the end of Romans 11, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's worship. And he goes on and says, holy and acceptable. That's the lingua franca of worship. And he says, which is your spiritual worship? Here you go. I take all of this, all five nine, all 150 pounds, all these gray hairs, these two hands and two eyes, all that I am, in response to the gospel, in response to the one whom Paul says in doxology, for from him and through him and to him are all things, and Paul says, here it is, I appeal. As you look at God's mercies in Christ, give all that you are. For his service. So every thought that you think. Every emotion you feel. Every word that comes out of your mouth. Every glance of your eyes. Every minute of your day. Every action you will. Every goal you set. Every moment of work, study, play and rest. All may be given and offered to him with his glory. 
as all that will fill up the horizon of your vision. And so you take Romans 12.1, Paul's response, how he presses on us our response to the gospel. And then 1 Corinthians 10, how we will live out our liberty with our fellow blood-bought brothers and sisters. And he says this here. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we might be quick to pray with David, knowing that all of life is worship and that we must distinguish, we must distinguish between the private and the corporate, between the generic all of life is worship and the specific that we gather for corporate worship. That's why we don't just call this worship. Does that make sense? That would be a misnomer. Yes, this is worship. This is corporate worship. But corporate worship is to inaugurate a whole week, a Tuesday through Saturday, of living lives that are offered as worship and that are marked by seasons of private and personal worship. There's a second application. It's this. Remember that orthodoxy is no guarantee of a white-hot doxology. Theological precision does not equal holiness or even a passion for God. We may assent to correct theology, but be utterly dead in spirit. I was interviewing a young man yesterday for church membership, and he said, I had all the answers, had all the right answers here. I could spit them out. I could regurgitate them, but I was lost. The right answers, but a dead heart. You see, there's no true doxology apart from orthodoxy in the faith that was once delivered to the saints. There's no true doxology. I want you to hear me because I'm going to qualify this. There's no true doxology. That's this attraction to the glory of God in a pursuit of the glory of God apart from orthodoxy in the faith that was once delivered to the saints. But there's no orthodoxy and there's orthodoxy is no guarantee that we'll know anything of the true worship of God. Having all the right and correct answers, being even overtly biblical, even dare I say reformed and Calvinistic in holding to a confession of faith, and even standing in a long line of solid theologians and theological tradition and naming Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Carson and... Piper and Sproul are best friends and best buddies. None of those things mean that we're worshiping with a height, really a white, hot worship. How can this be true? It's because the spirit of worship is no partner with the spirit of an insidious and deadly spiritual pride. You see, we'll be like those seraphim when we have a sight of the glory of God in his holiness. We'll be like the man, the publican in Luke 18 who goes to the temple to pray, God be merciful to me, the sinner. We'll be covering our eyes. And humility will be covering our feet. And we'll be cranking up our wings and saying, here am I, send me with Isaiah. It's biblical worshipers who are on their knees prostrate before their great God. 
There's a third application, that is children can worship too. Adults, let us not tolerate the children of our church family. Let us invite them in. Let's not leave them out at the perimeter, but draw them in. Let's perceive their capacity for worship. We don't confer that capacity upon our children. We acknowledge it from the moment of their first breath. It's God-given. So what is our task? We must prepare their hearts for worship. And dads and moms, worship is and always must be a whole family activity and a whole church family activity. I do not believe that there will be men and women on their deathbed who will regret the time they spent in family worship with their children or praying with their children. They'll regret working too much, but I doubt that they'll regret worshiping too much. Let's invite and involve the youngest generation in the greatest thing possible, the greatest cause. The worship of the eternal God who made them in all things. Let's take the catechism and the confession and let's root it in their hearts, not just a Q&A, 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 but press that reality of the truths expressed in them, that God has made them worshipers, the one who's made them. To worship the God who from eternity covenanted to redeem a people for himself from all the nations of the world both young and old, through the cross of his son. God forbid we fail to teach and pass this gospel on to our children and our children's children. Christianity is not simply the purview of those over 18. You hear these adult communities in the state of Florida, like a 55 plus community? Let's not act like that with our body. Feel the psalmist's passion and resolve for just this burden in Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18. He says, oh God, from my youth, you've taught, you've taught me. And I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. May God give us eyes to see the children among us, to invite them to hear the great things of God and the truths of the scriptures and to know that with a level that makes sense for their understanding, they too may believe. They too may trust Christ. There's a fourth application that is the idea of developing a rhythm of worship in your life and family. And this makes sense. First, cultivate in all of life is to be lived as an act of worship with your children. That's why you don't need to say we're going to go to worship. Yes, this is our corporate worship. This is our corporate gathering where we worship together. But to see life lived is ongoing worship and offering a sacrifice pleasing to God. It looks like shucking corn with your children coaching their soccer team. 
encouraging your child in those first few violin lessons when they're like, Mom, I can't do this. And you're like, you can. You can. None of these are any less spiritual than reading a passage of Scripture as you are around the dinner table. Of course, it's through the word that faith is nurtured. But moms and dads remember that virtually all of life's moments may be stewarded as we live Korem Deo, that is before the face of God. But cultivate both the habit and affection for private worship. Moms and dads, it would be really helpful, and I have to remind myself of this, could we not occasionally smile when we're gathered together for the worship of God? When we read those words in the Psalms, let the nations be glad, aren't we included? <laughs> Let's not look like someone just ran over our dog when we gather for worship. Let's gather gladly. And don't sacrifice one, that is, private worship at the expense of the other, that is, corporate worship. All right. Avoid that error of thinking this or that this only is worship. The truth is that in the New Testament, there's kind of a resacralization of time and space so that though the Old Testament lays this foundation for our worship, the pattern has the cleanest and crispest, most crisp edges in the New Testament. There was here calling upon the name of the Lord, as in Romans 10, where it quotes from the Old Testament. But then you read, if you'll look, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so from the old to the new, there's this this new focus on not just God-centered worship, but really Christ-centered in Christ-exalting worship in the New Testament era. Well, finally, final application. That's the idea of the seesaw of worship and missions. We've already alluded to this earlier from Dr. Piper's quote. What's the point of missions The point of missions is an acknowledgement and a response to a world that's void of true God-honoring, fully Trinitarian, Christ-centered, biblically-directed, and really a white-hot worship, like fall-on-your-knees worship among all our fellow image-bearers. Yesterday, Cheryl and I were driving someplace, and There was a young man who did a really dangerous traffic maneuver. I don't think we'd ever seen it. And it was easy in the moment. As I stopped, I said, like, I I did my hands like, are you kidding? Have you ever done that to another driver? You understand what I'm saying? But we need to transfer that type of response, that shock and awe and a sense of being inconvenienced by a fellow image bearer, when they do maybe an illegal or rude traffic maneuver to where I look and see that person with longing that he might become a true worshiper of the living God through Jesus Christ.
rather than be feeling angry in that moment, that it would be the longing of my heart that that young man would know God, that he would join even this company of worshipers. That's the purpose of missions. And so when we cultivate worship in the life of our church family, if we do that well, we will have a passionate concern for missions. It will be inevitable. We will want the world full, not just of God's glory, but full of spirit-transformed worshipers, a kind of Eden 2.0. And we'll have this unrestrained rejoicing Not that our name is great, a.k.a. Genesis 11 in the pursuit of the Tower of Babel. But as Paul wrote the church at Philippi, we'll have this unrestrained rejoicing. The broadest smile on our face, unrivaled inward joy at the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the great aim. This is the great joy. This is the great privilege of white, hot worship.